Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Robert Young Pelton with us. Author, of course, Licensed to Kill, Hired Guns in the War and Terror. He is an author, journalist, filmmaker, photographer, adventurer, explorer, and philosopher, of course. He has trained Navy SEALs in survival, participated in secret special forces training, motivates a lot of people to do meaningful things with their time on this planet, and we're going to talk to him about world events. Robert, welcome back, my friend. How have you been? Hi, George. I was just in northern Chad, of all places, so it's good to be back where it's not 130 degrees every day. You're all over the map. I hear they stopped chasing uh, Joseph Coney. Is that true? No, I've been tracking him for years. He's in DRC, in the northern part of DRC right now. Well, let's talk about things that have been happening on this planet lately. Get your views on it. And, uh, of course, we're coming up on the tragic 20th anniversary of 9-11 this uh, coming Saturday and the situation of Afghanistan. Give me your overall view, Robert, on just the Afghanistan situation. Us going in there, us staying 20 years, and then the way we got out. Yeah, I guess the easiest way to process what's happening now, particularly on 9-11, 20 years later, is that Afghanistan always was a poor landlocked country. And uh, despite the trillions of dollars we spent and lives we lost, uh, we can't change that metric. We, we can push the needle a bit. You know, we can increase the economy and we can build some things. But the country itself does not have the ability to sustain the amount of uh, development we put in. You know, we can build a school, but we can't magically create a teacher. You know, we can build a road, but we can't create commerce between two points. So, you know, I was with the Taliban when they first took over, and uh, it's not a whole lot different you know, you see it within minutes. It just sort of devolves back to its normal homeostasis. So I think that's the lesson to learn, is that we we went in there, we put in a lot of energy, a lot of money, but we can't shift things. Uh, you know, we can't turn it into another America or another state. No, I know. And the, the way we left, you know, we should have gotten everybody out first, the people that were going to come out, and then the troops. Well, we've, been, we've been leaving for 10 years, and I have to say something, that... There is a political movement now. Uh, there was a need to help people get out. You know, some of my friends who are Afghan special forces and, you know, interpreters and people that worked with the U.S., they, there was some risk. Those people are out. And, and what's happening now is there's sort of a political movement in which they're trying to create a sense that we've left people behind. And in reality, we, we've been leaving for 10 years. So there's it's no shock or secret that we were going to pull out at some point. Robert, who are the Taliban? <laughs> it's a very strange question because they seem to be almost uh, mythical, right? I mean, yeah. Almost like cartoon figures. Uh, the Taliban are essentially a group of people who went to religious schools in, in, in Pakistan. And it, in Pakistan, during the English uh, occupation or colonial times, they created schools for poor people. And, and these were called madrasas, and you would learn religious training. So... Uh, as Afghans explain it to me, you know, if you have five kids, one becomes a businessman, one becomes a soldier, and, and one becomes a mullah, and you need five years of training to become a mullah. So what happened is that a lot of poor kids in Pakistan uh, were in these madrasas, which were then used to recruit fighters during the 80s. And this religious training sort of had a firebrand element to it. And so it was used by the CIA and the ISI to recruit people to go fight the Russians. And this created a whole class of, of people who fought and who were, you know, abused and, and terribly treated during the 80s. Uh, 
Sure. But we're never really part of the country of Afghanistan. So this is a nationalist movement. And when we first saw them, they were getting rid of warlords and sort of endless fighting. Uh, this time they just sat and sat us out and just argued us out in Doha. And we gave up and they just came back. How did they organize so quickly to take over the country so fast? Okay, well, they've always had shadow government. So you go to a place in Afghanistan, you'll see a governor that was appointed by Karzai or Ghani. He's probably from Australia. He probably has a degree in you know, economics. Mm-hmm. But there's also a shadow governor who works for the Taliban, and he collects taxes. And he says, oh, so that guy charged you $100 to register your car. Well, we're going to put a bomb, you know, along the road and you'll get your justice. So the Taliban was always known for sort of being a balancing act uh, and sort of fighting the corruption, you know, and lack of interest of these uh, centralized government. So when they sort of said, OK, now we're going to take over, it was completely in sync with our withdrawal. We simply took out so many troops that we could not defend, uh, you know, the military institutions and the troops that we had created, we did the same thing as the Russians. We wanted to create 400,000 security troops. We're, we're just doing it for the money. So when the Taliban said, here we come, they didn't want to die for that. The Talibs are Afghans, and they actually remember when the Talibs were in power. So we saw something, an artificial environment, that when we turned the lights off, poof, it turned right back to what it was before. When the Soviets tried to uh, invade Afghanistan, uh, we helped what was called the Mujahideen. Were they some of the mm-hmm. Taliban? Yeah, so this is an interesting little piece of trivia. So the war in Afghanistan was actually caused by Jimmy Carter in 1979 in July when he authorized covert uh, support for Pakistan-based uh, jihadi groups. And when the Russians saw this, they said, oh, we better get in there. So that's when the Russians invaded in the winter. And then what happened is that we ended up pumping in anywhere between three to six billion dollars in weaponry and and support uh, to degrade the Russian forces. And that created an entire class of sort of warriors who couldn't be part of society. And they mostly lived in the border areas uh, in Pakistan, which is, you know, if you know the tribal areas, they're sort of half Afghanistan half Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And these people had very rough and tumble lives. So when you see the Talibs walking around Kabul, they're about 42% illiterate. They can't read or write. They have no education. So you're seeing a group of quasi-intellectuals who have religious training and just large numbers of farm kids who've never seen a city before. Now, somewhere along the line, bin Laden was a member of this group somehow, because didn't we support him too? Well, okay, so what happened is that the Afghans speak Dari and Pashto, right? So when these guys went to fight, uh, suddenly these Arabs started showing up, and there was a guy named Abdullah Azam who recruited foreigners to come fight and help the Afghans fight the godless Soviets. Those people were separated because they spoke Arabic. And so bin Laden ran a, <clears throat> excuse me, an office in the university area of Peshawar, And his job was to write down the names and addresses and phone numbers of all these volunteers that came over. So if they got killed, they could, you know, tell their family. That book, which is sort of what you call a database, became the base, which is Al-Qaeda. So all the Arabic-speaking fighters were channeled through different methods, and they became what they call Al-Ansar. And they were sort of like the shock troops, you know, the guys that went there to die, and they would be brave and go to heaven if they fought jihad. But they weren't linked to any sort of nationalist uh, Afghan movement. 
And Afghanis are not what we would call traditional Arabs. They're not from Saudi Arabia or Lebanon or Kuwait or or Iraq or anything like that, are they? No, Afghans are a unique race. Some of them even think they're the lost tribe of Israel. Uh, the Pashtuns are the largest group. They're they're a fascinating group of people. You know, I, I have a ranch over there, and, and my friends are Pashtun, and they have very strong commitments to friendship and defending people. Uh, but at the same time, they're they're admired for their their bravery and their strength and whatever. So the Arabs, who we used to call Gumbies because they were very skinny and bent a lot, would come over to sort of brag about fighting jihad, and so. You got to remember, a lot of teenagers there have no money, no girlfriend, no chance of any sort of uh, advancement. Right. Being a jihadi is a big deal. It's like being a marine. You know, I went over there, I fought, blah blah blah. So they attracted a lot of Arab kids and a lot of foreigners. So where do we stand today? I mean, the president's approval rating has plummeted, partly because of COVID nineteen and the way he's been handling that but a lot over this Afghanistan situation. Where are we as a, um, as a country with our foreign policy? I mean, are we respected anymore? Well, I, I have to say this. I mean, I've seen war for 30 years, now. I've been in God knows how many wars, you know, 15, 20. I'm happy we're getting out of Afghanistan. And I'm saying that as a guy who's been to Afghanistan many, many times over you know, 20, 30 years. We created a, a horrible situation in which there was no win, there was no easy way out. So Biden, and I think because he's an older gentleman, has said, I'll make that hard decision. You know, it was basically precipitated by Trump's agreement with the Taliban, but he's willing to take it on the chin for that. And I think that's healthy. I, I don't think America should be running around the world trying to stomp out every little fire and find every terrorist. So I think that's good. Secondly, Americans have to look inward. We, you know, we, I wouldn't say that we've had a destroyed culture, but COVID has really taken it on the chin. I mean, we've spent trillions of dollars just trying to keep people in their homes and employed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's time to heal ourselves, you know, to look inward. And this is a trend all around the world of nationalism, you know, people saying, let's take care of us before we run around and try to fix everybody else's problems. Would you say the world is more dangerous now than it was 10 years ago? Yes, and, and, and I don't mean that somebody's going to hit you with a brick as soon as you get off the plane, but I mean people are now, instead of being globalists and looking at the international brotherhood as a way of the future, they're looking at tribalism, they're looking at family. And, and you can see that in your neighborhood. People want to take care of their family, they want to take care of their house, they want to take care of their local government, is important to them. And this sort of creates distrust of foreigners and distrust of new things. Uh, the amount of aid that we normally spend overseas is dropping. Uh, we have very little interest if there's a flood in Bangladesh, you know, because we have floods in New Orleans. So we, we're now focusing inward and we're looking at our needs. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.